0: I'm going to invite your attention this evening to the book of Genesis once again, Genesis chapter 1. I'll let you remain seated tonight. We're going to be kind of bouncing around reading some different things. As we get into the study on the family, the Christian home, last week of course we looked at kind of God's purpose in creating the family and really how we ought to look at uh, the families that God has given us and, and how we are to... Uh, really accomplish and fulfill his purpose within the context of the family that he has given to us. And uh, the first several messages within this series are foundational really to understanding. We will get to uh, roles within the family and some of the nuts and bolts, I call it, of, of of you know family relationships and interaction and all of that. But there are some things that we need to understand before we can really start talking about the daily living within the family we need to understand God's view of things and 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 how this is supposed to work and how this is supposed to function and so tonight we're going to be looking at the subject of biblical masculinity and that is obviously we have every home is made up of should be right a man and a woman and children in most cases and as part of that we need to understand if we're gonna understand what a man is supposed to be for instance in his home we need to understand what a man is supposed to be and I think that you know it, it, it may sound kind of silly in fact just just recently uh, there was a, a documentary done by a, a fairly well-known uh, conservative media company the documentary was called what is a woman and it's kind of a uh, somewhat of a, a humorous examination of uh, society's understanding of what a woman is, and it's really sad uh, how many people can't identify what is a man, what is a woman, and I just want you to know that God has clearly defined these things for us, and it's important for us to understand that and know what that is, And and I'm not saying these things to you tonight assuming that you know, this is new information, things you don't know, but I do think it's important to examine biblically, what does God really say about this? Because I think it's fair to say that for a long time in our society, there have been a lot of misunderstandings of what masculinity is all about and what femininity is all about. Now, let me just say at the outset, in case anyone is confused... God made men and women different, and he made men to be masculine, and he made women to be feminine, and I don't care what time of life that we're in and what era we live in, I will never apologize for preaching that men ought to be masculine and ladies ought to be feminine, because that's biblical, it's just right, it's part of our biblical worldview, it's truth. but, but when I say the word masculine, more than likely something comes to your mind. Some picture of a particular type of man comes to your mind. And let me tell you that for a very long time in this country, the picture of what a masculine man is, has been distorted. It's been distorted. Sometimes when I say the word masculine or masculinity, Maybe the picture you get in your mind is some guy, some big, burly, hairy guy who walks around, he's strong, he's crude, he's kind of abrasive, you know, and he just, I mean, he likes his sports, and he likes his uh, hunting and fishing, and you know, he's just a man's man. Maybe you get the picture of someone like a, a John Wayne or a Chuck Norris, or I don't know what it is, but I want you to know that's, that's Hollywood's understanding of masculinity. And actually along with that have come a lot of negative connotations. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a concept in the uh, Latin American world that if you've been around that Latin American culture very long, you've probably come across the concept of machismo. Anybody ever heard of that before? It's, it's this idea, you hear it especially uh, um, among those of Mexican descent, uh, machismo. This is a guy who's like really a man's man, right? But he's also a guy who doesn't take any guff from anybody, especially women. He puts them in their place. You know, he is the, the ruler. He's the king of the castle. And in his home, you know, things are going to go the way that he wants them to go. And that's their idea of what it means to be masculine. But that's not necessarily the biblical picture and understanding of masculinity. But because of these negative connotations that have been associated wrongly with masculinity for so long, there has been an attempt, and yes, it is an intentional attempt, to do away with masculinity as it exists. In fact, you hear the term, I'm sure many of you have heard it. In fact, raise your hand if you have. Toxic masculinity. You ever heard that before? Let me tell you this. Biblical masculinity has nothing toxic about it all, at all. Nothing. However, there is a degree of something that some have identified as masculine that is not right. And so people have jumped on this bandwagon to say, hey, you know, we've got to get rid of toxic masculinity, and in doing so, what they have done is they've actually devalued masculinity as a whole. And here are some of the ways that they've done that. One is, we are going to seek to feminize men. And there are an awful lot of male individuals running around this nation especially, but others as well, that are male biologically that is what they are they are men but everything about them is feminine or effeminate and the idea is in the minds of some people that this is a good thing because we are doing away with masculinity i think one of the historically one of the the more damaging movements uh, on masculinity and femininity was the equal rights movement, the civil rights movement in, in relation to women and I'm not against, please don't get me wrong, I'm not against ladies uh, having a, a, a right to vote and, and being able to work and those kinds of things, I'm not against that, but as part of that movement there was this idea that came along where, you know, that whole battle of the sexes thing, right? I can do anything that a man can do. And you know what really happened with that whole movement? There was a devaluing of masculinity. But there was also a devaluing of femininity. And quote-unquote feminists have done more damage... Two ladies than probably any other, you know, movement that's, that's ever taken place. It's, it's tragic and it's sad because God designed men and women to be different and distinct for a reason, for a purpose. And God has something for you just as he created you. And yet we've gone about and blurred these lines and created confusion to where now much of our society cannot tell the difference between men and women. And they really truly believe in and of themselves that the only difference between a man and a woman is their their biology, their chromosomes. Now, I will tell you this, your biology is what you are. If you were born a male, you are a man, period. If you were born a female, you are a woman, period. However, we are distinct not only in our biology... We are distinct in our makeup. We are not the same. We don't think the same way. We don't act the same way, at least not naturally. There is a difference in our physical abilities. And I understand that there are people who want to deny that, but you can't deny the fact. We are different in our physical abilities. We are different on purpose but this concept of blending and blurring the lines has done great damage to our society as a whole to families and to people in general and many people in this this world today are very confused about what their life is supposed to look like and what they are supposed to do and what their responsibilities are because we have devalued the differences between men and women. Now, let me say this also. There's another thing that was done and is very prevalent in society today and is even prevalent in many of our churches today. That is, I believe, an attack, maybe not intentionally, but indirectly, it is an attack on biblical masculinity. And here's what it is. It is the concept of adolescence. Did you know that the concept of adolescence is foreign to the Bible? You have in the Bible, you have children and young men and men. And yet, we have created this concept, and this is fairly new. I mean, within the last couple hundred years at most, we've created this concept that sometime between the ages of 12 and 30... You know, it's just kind of a a period of time where especially boys just kind of you know have fun and live it up and kick back and relax and you know these are the best years of your life, and go sow your wild oats and whatever it is that you know you know we would say. But the truth is that biblically speaking, and historically speaking, by the time a young man reached his teenage years. He was expected to be a man. He was to become a man. He was to be embracing responsibility. He was to be embracing God's purpose in his life. And he was to be out working and providing and learning how to live. And yet, we've kind of given given this grace period. Where... You know, just go on and have fun. Let, let them be kids. They're only kids for so long. And then they grow up, and through their teen years, they're never given responsibility. They're never expected to become anything. And then they go off to college for a few years. And a lot of times people goof off and party through college and then they they get through college and maybe they set kind of some career path and and they're kind of, you know, headed in the direction of adulthood and the idea is someday I'm going to kind of, you know, settle down and get married and and be an adult. But today, I'm just going to live the way I want. You know what it's resulted in? We say this proverbially and jokingly, but 30-year-old men living in their parents' basements that live on video games and we have an uh, just an abundance even married people with children we have abundance of full-grown men who are children in maturity and interest it's an attack on biblical masculinity and so tonight I want to just take a few moments here and look at some things that the Bible has to say about masculinity about about men and what we ought to expect and aspire to and so we're in Genesis chapter 1 and we're going to read verse 26 and then we're going to flip over to chapter 2 but Genesis 1 verse 26 it says and God said let us make man in our image after our likeness And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now, let's go over to chapter 2 and verse 8. Now we'll back up to verse 7. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Then we'll look down to verse number 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now I want to show you here that there was a difference In what God created. There was a distinction. God created man... ...in His own image. With a purpose... ...to accomplish for the Lord. And in the fulfillment of that purpose... ...He created a woman to be a helper... ...to her husband. But unlike Adam who he formed of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Unlike that, he took a rib from Adam and he made one like himself yet different. A female. Woman. Who was taken out of man. Now, the statement that he makes, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That statement in itself is an incredibly powerful statement as Adam looked at his wife and said, essentially, you are me. You can hear in his voice the expression of love, of desire, of protection. But I want you to know that they were very different. In fact, they were so different that the Bible tells us, ladies, please don't misunderstand uh, stand this, but the Bible tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that man is created in the image and glory of God and the woman is the glory of the man. In other words, God created man in his image and out of man he created woman in man's image. There's a distinction. In fact, this distinction is very clearly defined throughout Scripture at times when men are encouraged to act like men. Let me give you an example. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 16 and verse 13, the Bible says these words, quit ye like men. You know what that means? Act like a man. I'll occasionally tell my boys, man up. I don't tell my daughter to man up. You know why? I don't want my daughter to be like a man. But I do want my boys to become men. And I have certain expectations for them. And by the way, God does too. Quit you like men, be a man. He said to Job twice in the book of Job, he used this phrase. He said, gird up your loins like a man. Now, if you're familiar with the, uh, with the, the concept of the, the way that they dressed back in those days, most of what they wore were like long robes, tunic type things. But they had a practice of, you know, when you're working out in the field or when you're going out to battle or you're going to go and run some kind of distance, that long robe kind of gets in your way. And so they would take a belt or a girdle And they would take that tunic and they would pull it up and tuck it into that belt. And they had essentially what were a pair of pants that were tucked into this belt so that they could accomplish the the things that men do. Go out and work in the field and and go out to battle and all of these things. And so God says to to Joe, hey, essentially, in today's world, put your pants on. That's what he's saying, be a man. Stir up your loins like a man. Why is that important? Because what God is saying is there is a certain way that God expects men to be and to act and to live. And it's different from that of what a woman ought to do. Now again, we've, we've, we've blurred this over the years to the point where we kind of have this idea, you know, man, woman, it doesn't necessarily matter. But it does. It does matter in God's eyes. For instance, God told, called Gideon in Judges chapter 6, He called him a mighty man of valor. You never find in the Bible a reference to a woman as a mighty woman of valor. That doesn't mean that women are uh, are, are not important, are not valuable. In fact, just the opposite is true. But they are different. They are different. And so masculinity is distinguished from femininity, but let's see how it is defined. Look Look with me at verse number 15, if you would, of Genesis 2. It says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. What was the purpose that God had for man to fulfill? Even before the fall, man's purpose was to work. Did you know that working is not a bad thing? Young man, we got a whole row of them right here. Did you know that work is not a bad thing? It's actually a good thing, and you were created for it. God created you with the physical ability to work. Your body is designed for it. The man's body is kind of utilitarian, okay? And it's made to be strong, and it's made to labor, and to, the, the, God made man to work. Part of the responsibility of a man, a biblically masculine man, is to work and to provide for his family and his household. Now, after the fall, work became more difficult. God said in Genesis three seventeen, "...because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall, uh, shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field." In the sweat of thy face thou shalt, eat, or shalt thou eat bread till thou return to the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. I was just the other day clearing some, an area on our property, trying to open it up a little bit, and I got into some green briars that were taller than I was. And man, everywhere I turned, I was getting stuck by thorns and thistles, and I was cursing Adam in my heart. <laughs> I know I was made to work, but it wasn't supposed to be this hard until sin entered the picture, right? Thorns and thistles came as a result of that. But listen, men were made to work, and they were made to provide. So much so that the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and verse number 8, that if a man provide not for his own, especially they that be of his own household, he's denied the faith, and worse than an infidel. It is a man's job to provide for his family. Now, I understand that in many households, the way it's set up, the wife also needs to work and, and you know contribute to uh, the finances of the family, and I'm okay with that to a degree. But, man, you need to know something. It is your responsibility to make sure that your family is taken care of. It's your responsibility <clears throat> to work. <clears throat> Secondly, though, let me say this. Not only did God make us to work, but God made us to lead. This is where the rub comes in a lot of times. Because some people don't like to be led, and some ladies don't like to be led, and they get offended when you say that the man is supposed to lead, but God created men to lead. You understand that God created Adam and Eve, and He gave to Adam a commandment that he could eat of all the fruit of the trees of the garden except the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was Adam's responsibility to communicate that to his wife. A couple weeks ago I mentioned to you that I don't believe he did that very well because when Eve was tempted by Satan, she misunderstood the commandment, didn't she? And that misunderstanding created some confusion that may have led to the fall. But look at what God said. We're in Genesis 3. Look at verse 17 again. It says, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and so on. He said the reason for this fall... Did you know, in the, who was the first one to eat the fruit? Eve who's credited with the sin? Adam. In every case wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, in fact, this is clarified in the book of 1st Timothy. I want you to go there with me if you would. 1st Timothy chapter 2. 1st Timothy 2 verse number 11. It says here, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Listen to this. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. What does that mean? Adam is the one who is credited with the sin... Even though Eve was the first one to partake of it. Why? Because Adam knew better and should have put a stop to it. And he didn't. And I'm going to just say tonight that I believe many of the problems that take place in our home, and in society, and in our churches, are a result of men not embracing the role that God has given to lead now, to be a leader does not mean that we lord over. To be a leader does not mean that we're a dictator. It doesn't mean that we are somehow abusive. It doesn't mean that we that, that, that we control. What it means is that we embrace the role that God has given by setting the example and making sure that things are taken care of the way that they ought to be within our homes. Go forward a few pages to 1 Peter, if you would, in chapter Number five. First Peter five is not an admonition just to men. It's actually an admonition to elders or pastors within a church. But I want you to notice these words. Verse number two of First Peter five, Peter says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. So what is he saying? He says to pastors that, that we are to take the oversight of the church. He doesn't say to wait until it is given. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's my responsibility. If there's a failure in leadership, I cannot say to God, well, God, the people just wouldn't let me lead. Because God would say to me, you were to take the oversight. Now, at the same time, he says, not as being lords over God's heritage. It's not my job to meddle in your personal life and to control you and tell you every decision that you have to make and and to be the Holy Spirit. You belong to God. I am not to be the Holy Spirit or a replacement for Him in your life. I'm not to be a dictator, but I am to be a leader. And it's my responsibility to make sure that I am leading as I ought. And did you know that within a home, it's actually much the same way? Men, take the oversight in your home. That means that there might be some decisions that you make that your wife and your children will not like. But you need to take the oversight. You are responsible for your home. You will answer to God for your home. Take the oversight. Don't do it as a dictator. You're not that machismo, this this is my castle and I'm the king and you'll do what I say. No, no, no. You are to be a servant leader. You are to be an example. You are to lead the way. Men, you ought to be the most spiritual person in your home. You ought to have a closer relationship with God than your wife does. You want to have more zeal for the Lord than your children do. And you should be leading the charge and leading the way. It's our responsibility to be the leaders. Because God has made us leaders. Second or thirdly, let me say that part of the role of a a man is not only to be a worker and to be a leader, but to be a protector. We are to be a protector. We're in 1 Peter. Go back to chapter 3 if you would. Verse 7. We looked at this at the the Valentine banquet the other night. Verse 7 says, Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them, your wives, according to knowledge. Listen to this. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. I've, I've used the illustration before. If we had, and I don't think we have any really in here, but if we had a, a beautiful crystal vase that was decorative and beautiful and valuable, expensive. And next to it, we had a Rubbermaid trash can. Which one of those two things... Is weaker. It'd be the vase wouldn't it? So many ladies get offended when you say. Hey they're the weaker vessel. Wait a second. Weaker doesn't mean less valuable. Weaker means more fragile. In need of greater care. Guys we're kind of like the Rubbermaid trash can. We don't look as pretty. We've got a purpose. I mean, I'm thankful for a trash can. (laughs) We've got a purpose, but we can take some abuse that our wives cannot. And if I am to give honor unto my wife as unto the weaker vessel, that means that there are some things I need to stand in the way of. That I need to absorb some of the attack. I need to protect my wife and my children physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I've known a lot of men who have said, I'd do anything for my wife. I would die for my wife. I'd kill for my wife. But yet, they walk around and walk all over them like they're just a doormat. Oh, if someone ever broke into my home and tried to harm my wife, I mean, they'd be dead before they made it through the doorway. Great. But are you protecting her heart? Are you protecting her spirit? Are you protecting your home from the attacks of the enemy? Are you guarding the the, the avenues in which Satan would come in to try and get an advantage? Are you willing to stand in the way and stand in the gap and say, not in my home? Are you willing to rise up early in the morning and pray for your family and pray over your family? Are you willing to make some decisions in regard to your children, the things that you allow them to be involved in, the people that you allow them to associate with? Listen to me. So many men are willing to leave the raising of their children to their wives. Friend, it's wrong. It's not your wife's job to protect them from the things of this world. It's your job. Sometimes we need to to learn where those lines are and say, you know what, I'm going to say no in this situation because it's for your own good, because I care about you, I love you, and I'm your protector. Ephesians 5 describes the husband as being the savior of the body. Job chapter 1, if you'd go there with me back in the Old Testament, in the book of Job, I want to show you something about Job. Job is a a fascinating book of the Bible. It's a book that's filled with with philosophy and questions and, and, and trying to understand who God is and how he relates to man and And Job, by the time, from Job chapter 1 till the end of the book, Job gets a world-class education in the ways of the Lord. And basically comes out at the end saying, okay, I know nothing about God. (laughs) The more you learn about God, the more you'll learn you know nothing, okay? But I want you to notice something that Job did. In Job chapter 1, verse 5, it says, And it was so... When the days of their feasting were gone about, speaking of Job's children, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now, later on, when everything, his world came crashing down, Job makes a statement that he says that that which I greatly feared has come upon me. That makes me think that maybe Job's motive in offering sacrifices on behalf of his children wasn't necessarily what it should have been. He was more maybe motivated by fear of losing them than really trying to honor God with it. But I want you to notice that Job saw a need in his family and took it upon himself To try and pray for his children and offer sacrifices on behalf of his children. Because he was concerned about their well-being. Dads, we ought to be praying for our kids every single day. We should be praying for their salvation. For their sanctification. For their protection from the things of the world. the, The attacks of the enemy. This is the responsibility of a man. We are to be workers, leaders, protectors. And then, one last place I'd ask you to turn. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And I want to show you that masculinity, biblical masculinity, again, I'm not talking about how loud you can grunt or how much you can bench press. But biblical mascul- masculinity can be developed the truth is the more that we grow in grace the more that we grow in Christ the better men we will be and in first John chapter 2 verse number 12 it says I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake I write unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. And he goes on and he addresses those same groups again, children and fathers and young men. But I want you to notice that in this context, he's he's speaking not of those who are of a certain age or age group, but he's speaking of spiritual development. We understand what it means to be a babe in Christ, a new Christian, new believer... And then we grow to a point of maturity. That's that's the purpose. That's the goal. But he uses these three examples: children and fathers and young men, and each of those are identified by something distinct and different. I spent some time in our study on the book of First John explaining that and developing that a little bit. I won't take the time to do that, but I, I do want you to notice that the, that the the children were those that were they were characterized by knowing. That their sins were forgiven. Sometimes a a baby Christian. Maybe you don't know much. But that's what you know right. You know you're saved. (laughs) I know that I'm a child of God. Maybe that's all I know. But I know I'm a child of God. Fathers. Those are those who are characterized by knowing him. That is from the beginning. They have grown in their relationship with God. To the point where they know him. Young men. Those who are in between. They're characterized by strength and overcoming. Really, when you look at the stages of life of a man, that is what it is. Is it not? A child that turns into a young man who grows and overcomes and gets to know the Lord, becomes strong, and eventually grows into a wise, mature child of God. Why, what does this have to do with manhood? Well, I, I believe that as this comparison is being made, and he says, you know, this is how you ought to be growing as a Christian. I think there's a parallel admonition that says, children need to become young men who need to become fathers, old men, leaders. And guys, I want to say to you that None of us can say that we are where we ought to be. I I have a lot of growing to do, and so do you. But my identity is wrapped up in several different things. I am a husband, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a brother. I'm a friend. I'm a pastor. All of these things are part of my identity. But first and foremost, my identity is I'm a man. And my primary goal in life should be I am going to be a man of God. Because as I strive to be a man of God, that will help me to become a better husband and father and son and brother and friend, and pastor. So men, can I challenge you tonight? Let's scrap the world's concept of masculinity. Let's get into the book and say, what is it that God wants me to be? And strive by the grace of God to be men of God so that we can be what He wants us to be in every area of life.